Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Corey, how's it going? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me. There is so much news. I want to talk about everything education reform and 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 talk about the politics of it coming out into the election. But there's there's exciting news as of today. You have a piece in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, what's going on in Arizona? Yeah, so we already know that Arizona passed the biggest school choice victory in U.S. history just a couple of months ago. Doug Ducey signed into law an education savings account bill that would allow every single family, regardless of income, no eligibility requirements, regardless of background, to be able to take their children's state-funded education dollars to the education provider of their choosing. It's about $7,000 per student in Arizona. You can take it to the government school that you're assigned to if you want. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school, unlike the whole doctor thing. But if not, you can take that funding into something they call an education savings account, which then could be spent for private school tuition and fees. You can use it for any other approved education expenditure as well, including private tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curriculum, uh, special needs educational therapies, and and, and so on. And the thing is, after it got signed into law and 11,000 parents flooded the online education, uh, Department of Education website, which actually provided an error message because so many families were flocking to the website in such a short amount of time. They crashed it. They basically crashed the website. And uh, But the opponents of educational freedom, the defenders of the status quo, the teachers union-backed groups, Uh, had other plans. And in Arizona, you can do something called a veto referendum. If you get enough signatures, you can refer the law within 90 days of it being signed into law to the ballot on the next general election, which would be in 2024 of November. So this group called Save Our Schools Arizona, which why not? Why not save the students? They're all they're so concerned about the buildings. Right. Well, how about we create a group called Save Our Students as opposed to Save Our Schools? They went out over the past three months and went and tried to collect signatures as best they could. On Friday, they 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 did a press release celebrating that they had enough signatures that they they needed 118 or 119 thousand signatures in Arizona. It's about five percent. In Arizona, you have to get 5% of the turnout in the last gubernatorial election, which happens to be about 119,000 signatures that that would be required in Arizona. They came out boasting confidently that they had 142 or so thousand signatures, much more than was required. They had a 19% buffer, according to them. Uh, But little did they know... Some parents, uh, myself, and some organizations, including the Goldwater Institute, a free market think tank in Arizona, did a public records request separately to look at each of these individual signature seats and to make sure that they're actually telling the truth. It turns out that myself and others and the Goldwater Institute found that they had nowhere near the amount of signatures needed to refer the school choice expansion to the ballot. So uh, the Secretary of State still needs to call it and make it official, but they are as good as 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 over. Their executive director, Beth Lewis, at Save Our Schools Arizona, even essentially admitted de- defeat by saying, yeah, I don't... Uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but she told the press, like, yeah, I don't I don't think we have the, the, the accurate... the um, the signatures required, yeah. and then they started backpedaling, saying that, well, these were just uh, estimates that we were providing. We just guessed. And it's funny because Goldwater esti- uh, counted all of them by hand, found that they only had about 89,000 signatures they needed, and then they, they, they claimed they had 142,000. That's 59% higher than the hand count. So they either are really, really bad at math and they sh- probably shouldn't be teaching in the schools if they're that bad at math, or they lied. And I think it could be both of those, some combination of those things even, uh, or one or the other. Uh, or maybe they did some common core math. I don't know. They, they Yeah, I was going to say, this sounds like the new math. <laughs> yes, and so it's just so far off. And it's like, if you really had thought it was just an estimate and you were guessing, they did in their press release this confident... Um, uh, boasting of an exact number. They said 141, that we have 141,714 signatures. It's very specific. Yeah. 
Yeah. You, you know, when they taught you how to estimate in school, then then you say like, well, I have about 140,000. Right. Why would you make it so specific if you're just estimating? I think they were BSing all along. I don't know why they would do this. I think they didn't uh, uh, believe that parents and, and institutions were going to request this information immediately. And they probably didn't think that the Secretary of State office was able able to fill those requests quickly enough. Uh, but but we're watching, and I, I separately, just to confirm the validity of the Goldwater numbers, separately did a random sample of 100 of the uh, petition seats that they signed in, and I did, and I counted the number of signatures on each of those sheets. They needed 14.5 per sheet. I counted, on average, in that ran, true random sample using a random number generator, 11.33. If apply that to the overall population of sheets that they turned in, which were, which which is a number of uh, 8,175 sheets that they turned in, you multiply that out. It tends to, it happens to be about 93,000 uh, estimated signatures that they have. And that's assuming that they're all valid. These validity rates are typically not 100%. Ballotpedia did an analysis on this finding. The validity rates tend to be historically about 75%. So they probably really only have like 70,000 signatures. All that said, I know I'm throwing out a lot of numbers. They're nowhere near what they need. School choice prevailed. Uh, uh, the, the writing is on the wall. It's now up to Katie Hobbs, the Secretary of State, who's also running for governor in Arizona, who opposes school choice to just unfreeze the program, start processing those applications again, and let families free. The, the government school establishment is terrified, uh, but look, voters came out, they won. Parents also were a part of this as well. There was a decline to sign campaign led by Christina Corso, who is an education savings account school choice beneficiary mother in Arizona, and she assembled a huge team out there to fight against the uh, signature gatherers to just spread the the facts about school choice on the ground. And that's so they I, were successful yeah. in stopping the teacher. That's what I was going to ask you, because it seems like um, I'm assuming that Save Our Schools is a completely teacher-funded operation and that they had all the funding they needed. So are we talking about um, an incompetent campaign? Are we talking about this sort of counter campaign where parents are pushing back? Or are there just not enough parents that are opposed to this that, that would be willing to sign? Because it shouldn't have been that hard for them to do. Well, they were eight. I, I, it shouldn't have been that hard. It's only 5% of the previous gubernatorial turnout, which was only 118, 119,000. They should have been able to get the signatures. They should have been able. I don't know how much money they had, but they were paying signature gatherers. To, uh, we have information, uh, public record of them paying signature gatherers as well. So yeah, I with think the, it with was, enough money, couple, you can, you can yeah, buy these things. There's a couple of reasons why I don't think they got the signatures. One, and to, to backtrack a little bit, they did this uh, to a previous ESA law in 2018. They put it onto the ballot, and they got enough signatures back then. Uh, but the thing is, our, our group, the American Federation for Children, actually came out against that. A pro-school choice group came out against that ESA law on the ballot because we knew that it would essentially freeze or cap the number of families who could use the program essentially in perpetuity. Uh, by about it would be about five percent of the overall population. We want a hundred percent of the population to be eligible for school choice, and so they the Save Our Schools campaign was running around this year saying we beat this on the ballot back in 2018. Well, first of all, it's not 2018 anymore. We have the school closures that changed. Momentum for school choice has surged over the past couple of years. Families who thought that their kids were in great public schools based on their kids' report cards or based on their standardized test scores, those parents have woken up and they're pushing back and they're never going back to sleep. I mean, look at the latest Real Clear Opinion Research polling from 2022. The latest polling nationwide has found an eight percentage point surge in support for school choice since April of 2020, with now 72% of Americans supporting the concept of school choice. And that includes supermajority support among Republicans, Democrats, and independents. And we've had so many school choice legislative victories on the ground in 2021, 19 states expanding or enacting programs to fund students as opposed to systems, and then Obviously, in 2022, Arizona going all in with the gold standard of school choice policy, making it available to every single family. So Arizona's the best so far. That's the gold standard. And I'd say West Virginia has the law that is that I would argue is number two. 
That one is being challenged in the courts right now because, look, this is what the teachers union do. They do whatever they can. They go gather signatures. They challenge it in the courts based on bogus arguments. And you had a circuit judge who was previously endorsed and funded by the teachers union rule in West Virginia against the case. It's going to go to the state Supreme Court. The West Virginia Attorney General um, is confident that they'll rule the right way in favor of families. I believe that they, that we have uh, a favorable um, court at the Supreme Court level in West Virginia. And if it needs to be at the Supreme Court, we've had two recent school choice victories. So I think that will win. But in West Virginia, it's not as good as Arizona, I would say, be just because they have something called a switcher requirement. So it's not 100% of the population that's eligible. It's about 93% of the population that's eligible. And they build that into the bill to provide a taxpayer savings. They require that if you're not in certain grade levels, you have to switch out of a public school to use the program. Because if you're paying for people who are already paying for private school or home education already, you're taking on new people into the system. It's going to require a fiscal note uh, unless you make the the funding amount a percentage of what was spent in the public schools so but that's going to bust off in a couple of years anyway in west yeah. virginia uh and those are just a couple of states i mean it, it the momentum is huge the wind is at our backs and there's nothing that the teachers union can do about it they're terrified it is afraid and uh they'll keep trying to fight us but at the end of the day politicians are starting to see as well that it's politically advantageous to support school choice and it is a form of, of political suicide to come out against parental rights and education especially after the past couple of years but so yeah so l l let me let me just take a step back because I think um, um, you know I'm, I'm generally aware of, of your efforts and, and other school choice efforts and and all the work that has been done in the states all of these years but there does seem to be a tipping point um, a really self-inflicted wound by the unions themselves that um, the way that they behaved during the lockdowns of schools and, and mandatory masking and, and, and all of the requirements that they kept, they kept adding requirements that couldn't be met. And the bottom line was that the schools didn't open and, and, and the education and, and emotional health of kids was, was just disgustingly damaged. But it seemed to me that they didn't care. No. They, they thought care. they had so much power. They, they controlled the system. They didn't care. Um, this is a self-inflicted wound. Yeah, we might as well send a, 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 an award-winning cup to yeah. Randy Weingarten for overplaying her hand and inadvertently doing more to advance the concept of school choice and homeschooling than anyone could have ever imagined. They have really sparked the parent revolution that we've all been waiting for, and it's absolutely glorious watching them unable to reverse course. I mean, like you said, Randy Weingarten and the teachers unions have been so drunk on power for so long that they can't seem to reverse course. They keep doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down in their anti-parent rhetoric. And I'm glad that they... That their they their rhetoric it. is literally, um, these aren't your children, they're our children. That's right. They, they believe that they own other people's kids, and that is a deeply unpopular position. And it's why Democrats, I believe in particular, are going to need to switch their views on educational freedom because they're, you're, you're going to see more Terry McAuliffe moments among Democrats unless they start to join arms with parents or at least pretend to care about parental rights and education. And look, we saw this with Terry McAuliffe where it went, it's a, a, a year ago now. Uh, September 2021, the final Virginia gubernatorial debate where Terry McAuliffe said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Glenn Youngkin leaned into that as a political winner uh, and, and found that Terry McAuliffe was really in a catch-22 situation. If he came out for parental rights, well then Randy Weingarten, his boss, would have been mad at him. And Randy Weingarten's union, for the record, according to Open uh, Secrets website, in 2022, 99.99% of Randy Weingarten's union's campaign contributions have gone to Democrats as opposed to Republicans. But then on the other hand, on the other side of this, if Terry McAuliffe came out against parental rights, like we saw him do on the final gubernatorial debate stage, well, now we have a new special interest group in town, parents, and they aren't going away anytime soon, and they're finally paying attention, and they held McAuliffe accountable at the ballot box. If you look at Washington Post exit polling, 
Glenn Youngkin won with education voters by six percentage points, and he won overall by two percentage points in a state that went 10 points to Biden just the year before. And, and also what's important is that the same exit polling suggested that education was the number two issue in the election, second to only jobs in the economy. And so that's huge. Uh, and so the, the GOP in particular has a golden opportunity to become the parents party. Glenn Youngkin laid out a blueprint for success. So if, edu if Republicans want a red wave in November, they should lean into parental rights as a political winner. If they want to give a gift to the Democrats, they'll stay silent on education like they have for far too long. Uh, and, and the Democrats wish really that, that Republicans won't say a word on education and, and parental rights. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So, um, uh, actually, Terry McAuliffe, didn't he actually have Randy Weingarten do his closing argument? Was it the day before the election, something like that? The night before the election, Terry McAuliffe had the school closer close out his election at the same time. Yeah. What a disaster. And again, we look at this and we say, and we joke about it and say, what an idiot. Why would he do that? He wasn't he reading the polls. Didn't he see this was a bad idea that that Virginia schools were closed longer than just about any other state. They did a horrible job on reopening the schools. And the teachers union just was they were calling for vaccine mandates before going back to school, but then they changed the goalposts every step of the way on reopening. And even the next day on CNN, after Glenn Youngkin declared victory, a Virginia mom on CNN said that Randy Weingarten stumping for Terry McAuliffe was the nail in the coffin moment for her yeah. when it came to who she was going to vote for. But at the same time, you got to think about the political dynamics and the position that Terry McAuliffe was in. He knew that if he switched side and started supporting parents, well, then the union was going to be mad at him. So he was in a lose-lose situation. Whatever decision he made, he was probably going to lose. And that's why I say Glenn Youngkin laid out a blueprint for success for Republicans uh, because the more that the GOP leans into parental rights and education, the more it becomes politically disastrous for Democrats to come out against it. And I think this is actually part a path towards bipartisanship on school choice. Uh, I just wrote in the Wall Street Journal recently uh, in an article called A Democrat Defects on School Choice. This has to do with Democratic gubernatorial candidate Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania. It seems like he's reading the tea leaves a little bit because he recently, less than two months before election day or election night, uh, quietly changed his education plan. He's always been against school choice. He is endorsed by the Pennsylvania State Teachers Union, and he changed his education plan on his website. I have the uh, Internet Archive receipts to show the change uh, from as, as recently as September 7th. I've, I, I, saw, I don't know the exact date, but it's around there that he changed it. And first he just said stuff like, we got to empower parents. So he was already kind of reading the tea leaves and seeing the polls. But then he explicitly put something called lifeline scholarships in his education plan. And some people might say he, he's just going to back out. He's just saying this to win the election. But it really doesn't matter the reason uh, of, of why he's changing his policy prescriptions, right? I mean, Milton Friedman said it best. It's not about getting the right people in office. He said something along the lines of it's about making it politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right things. Yeah. And that's what parents are doing on the ground because they've formed a new vested interest, a new special interest group on the ground. The politicians are they have to start listening to them. And so Josh Shapiro put into his plan education savings accounts, which were introduced by a Republican earlier this year and passed the Pennsylvania House with only one Democrat in support, Representative Brown, the teachers unions came at, out after him after he did so. But it just goes to show you, if Josh Shapiro wanted to back out on this, he would have just said, I support school choice, or I support 
empowering parents like you did at first. Yeah. It's really hard to back out of a specific piece of legislation such as Lifeline Scholarships, which is an education savings account, kind of like what they passed in Arizona. Not as expansive. It is kind of a limited proposal where if you're assigned to a failing school, then you get an ESA or have an option to do so. But still, that's a huge change. And whatever the reason, it is good news for parents. Yeah. So I, I definitely want to talk about the the parents' revolution because I, I think that that is is going to change everything but let's let's dig a little bit deeper into the political capture of the government school system because i i think it is a, a dilemma for a democrat because so much of their funding you know it's not like the teachers union represents a lot of people it doesn't represent a lot of votes but it re- represents a lot of cash mm-hmm. and you mentioned already that um, i guess teachers themselves give 99 plus percent of their gifts to democrats over republicans but that's that still isn't that a drop in the bucket. Like, give us a sense for how much money the teachers unions put into politics. Do you have any sort of it's national numbers? It's millions of dollars yeah. each year. I believe the NEA or the, and the AFT's funding could be around a billion dollars per year. Yeah. Uh, relatively speaking, con- compared to other groups, I'd say that's pretty powerful. Um, but they also do have power in numbers. They are a voting block too, and they're they're a a, a special interest group uh, that, that can funnel money that is coursed from the taxpayers towards their preferred candidates. Uh, so it depends on the election, right? I mean, so they're playing in a whole bunch of different elections. And it's not just AFT and NEA. Those are the two big national unions, but there's state-level unions, there's local-level unions. And so they, they do have a substantial amount of power, but parents do have more power in numbers. If you think about it, the NEA, the, the largest union in the United States, which also happens to be the largest teachers union, has about over 3 million members. Uh, the latest number I've seen is about 3.2 million members in the National Education Association. <clears throat> and, that, and, that, and that number, yeah, I should correct what I said because that number, particularly in low turnout elections, they all vote and they, they vote as a block. Um, but parents, mostly. but but look, students in the public school system. There's over 50 million students yeah. in in government-run schools and charter schools, as well. Um, so parents have more power in numbers than the teachers' unions, and it really took something to motivate parents to band together because politicians don't listen to one-off. Um, voters voicing their concerns. They listen to voting blocks. And the parent party, uh, this parent voting block has emerged over the past couple of years because of the actions of Randy Weingarten and the teachers union uh, overplaying their hand. I mean, in Los Angeles, they were calling for a wealth tax, Medicare for all, police-free schools, and a massive infusion of federal cash in addition to a ban on charter schools, their competition, in their report on safely reopening schools. You had the Chicago Teachers Union, which is an affiliate of Randy Weingarten's union in Chicago, and they were they were tweeting out that it that the push to reopen schools is rooted in racism, sexism, and misogyny. They were actually really trying to make that argument against reopening schools. They pretty quickly deleted that tweet after it got ratioed into oblivion. Also, after I replied with a CNN headline that was about a study showing that, if anything, the school closures were leading to more inequities by leading to worse outcomes for black and Hispanic students and also for low-income students. And they later deleted the tweet. They had to backpedal off of that. By the way, that has, that has to be true. It was, it was the most inequi- inequitable policy of all the lockdown policies because um, you, you probably had parents that that relied on on schools as a form of daycare Um, but if you're if you're a part of the laptop class and you're super comfortable and um, you probably have time to to sort of manage and teach your kids and make sure they get on the zoom calls and all that it was so obviously targeting the the poorest parents who are already getting screwed over by the, the quality of the education that the government schools provide yeah, the school closures are one of the best examples of systemic racism we have in the country today, and uh, more particularly, the government school system 
overall. We have residentially assigned schools with uh, district lines that mirror redlining in the 1930s. So if you want to talk about systemic racism, we should look at the public school system. The problem is the people who usually use the term systemic racism, they only use that as a hammer against the policies they dislike, and they ignore it when it comes to the policies they do like, or they'll use it as a hammer against the school system and say, this, see, this is why we need the policy that I do like, which is just more funding. We can't erase those those district lines and, and allow for school choice. We instead have to spend a billion dollars per student, which gives more money to the teachers unions, yeah. which gives more money to the Democratic politicians who I already agree with. Um, and yeah, we have tons of studies showing that not just academic outcomes were worse for lower income and non-white students from the closures, but also that mental health outcomes and reports of declining mental health worsened more for non-white and low-income students as well. That's a study published, I believe, in JAMA, one of the top medical journals, by a researcher by the name of uh, uh, Dimitri Christakis and his research team as well. Uh, we also found there was a Yale study finding the same thing, that, that less advantaged populations who were already not doing as well in the school system uh, had worsening outcomes even more so as associated with the school closures. Uh, so look, the, but the parents are pushing back. A lot of people have asked me, like, you know, how long is this momentum for school choice going to last? I think it's going to continue. Even though the schools are open, something awakened in parents that had a little bit to do with the school closures, but it also had to do with the remote learning, which we shouldn't even called it remote learning. It's more like remotely learning because the kids weren't learning a lot of everything. The school closures hurt kids in so many ways. Uh, I mean, in, getting back to Chicago, they were still striking in 2022. Two weeks to slow the spread turned into two years to flatten a generation of children. Yeah, like there's this there's this thing that, um, and and we we did a documentary called Sick Year where um, basically followed the path of five or six moms who realized um, that the schools that were, they, you know, supposedly the parents are in charge of the schools. That's the mythology. But obviously that turned out not to be true. But in the process of, of trying to manage so-called remote learning, they also got a taste for the regimented um, structured education and the curriculum that quite often is just ridiculous bordering on offensive. So the, it was like a, a perfect storm of, of revelation for parents. And that's the point I was getting to. Thanks for reminding me. But uh, yeah, I mean, parents are never going to unsee what they saw in 2021. They saw that the school system didn't really give a crap about them. But then two, the silver lining was that they got to see what was going on in the classroom. So parents who otherwise might have been happy with their public schools that their kids were assigned to, started to see that their kids might be sending to institutions that are brainwashing them for 13 years in ways that don't align with their values. In some cases, parents were sending their kids to schools where they were learning to hate to hate their parents. Yeah. And parents don't want that. So they've gotten up. They started to show up at the school board meetings where they infamously were labeled uh, domestic terrorists for doing so, for pushing back against curriculum they disagreed with. You had the National School Boards Association colluding with the Biden administration to send a letter to the Department of Justice to imply that some parents should be uh, investigated for domestic terrorism. That blew up in the face of the NSBA, the National School Boards Association. 26 states over the past half year or so have decided to cut their membership or their funding to leave the National School Boards Association. The majority of states have already decided to do so. And so at this point, they really need a renaming. Can they really be called the National School Board Association? Maybe we'll call them, I don't know, the Regional School Boards Association, the Communist School Boards Association. The authoritarian I'm wing not, of the I'm School Boards sure. Association. I'm not sure what we should call it. But that is another example showing that parents have true power. Don't mess with mama bears and papa bears because now they're mobilized. They're not just doing their their day jobs, which they're, they're still doing and having to take care of their kids. Sure. But when you start to mess with parents and when the school system starts to pretend that they own your children, that's going to get those parents to get up like they have 
and they're going to push back at the school board meetings, but they're also going to push back at the, at the ballot box too. And that's where politicians are really starting to listen that, I mean, look in, look in Tennessee, for example. We just had the Republican and Democratic primaries. In the Republican House primaries in Tennessee, 10 of the Republicans were endorsed or funded by the teachers unions, uh, those candidates. Nine of them lost their primary races to Republicans who weren't endorsed by the teachers were unions. They, were they all incumbents or a mix? It was a mix. Okay. And so the way that I would put it is that the teachers union endorsement is becoming the political kiss of death, particularly when it comes to Republican primaries. School choice is becoming a GOP litmus test issue. And that's a good sign, not only for red states, but for blue states too, because I believe truly that the path towards nonpartisanship or bipartisanship is through hyperpartisanship. The more that the GOP leans into parental rights as a political winner, the more it's going to become a political loser for Democrats to come out against it. And if the if again, if the Republicans want to hand a gift to the Democrats, if they don't want a red wave in November, they'll stay quiet on education because then Democrats don't have to be in that catch twenty two situation where they either come out against the unions or they come out against the parents. So Republicans, if you're listening to this, follow Glenn Young, and he, he gave you a path towards political success. If you don't follow this blueprint, I'm sorry, but you deserve to lose in November. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Key Beyond Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So you have, um, and, and I should give a shout out to the um, very predictable ability of Republicans to screw up a gift. Um, and there's, um, I'm thinking of the state of Pennsylvania and it's been a few years and, and you would know where it is now, but, um, trying to pass school choice in Pennsylvania was always defeated at the margin because the teachers unions bought off enough Republicans, right. particularly in leadership. Um, and we, we definitely see that in deep red states because the teachers unions are not very smart in a lot of ways, but they're smart in, in some ways. Yeah. And in deep red states, they know that they're not going to get a Democrat blue majority, so they have to play heavily in Republican primaries, at least in one chamber. They've done this in Texas for a long time, and nobody's been watching. Thankfully, people are watching now. But in 2017, Texas passed, their Senate at least, an education savings account bill before it was cool to do so, before all the curriculum battles, before the school closures of 2020. This was in 2017 with all Republicans in favor except for two. Uh, and they so they passed it 19 to 12, Senate Bill 3 in 2017 in Texas. It quietly died in the House, though, despite having a so-called Republican majority in 2017. And not a lot of people, you know, remember that. Uh, but again, things have changed. In the Texas Republican primaries, for example, on their ballot this year in March of 2022, 88% of Republican primary voters in Texas supported the school choice proposition on, on the ballot. That same uh, proposition, or a very similar one, whether you support school choice, was also on the ballot in the Republican primaries in Texas in 2018. It was about 79% support, which is still good, but that represents an nine percentage point jump in support for school choice in Texas. So if that happens in Texas again this year, like it did in 2017, it's not going to be quiet. There's going to be a parent revolution, a parent uprising because they want school choice. In Texas, I believe it's about 77% of school parents supporting school choice policy. And even according to the University of Texas at Tyler polling, they recently found school choice support among Texas adults, uh, I believe it was likely voters, uh, majority support among Republicans, Democrats, and independents. And this is a poll coming from the university system, finding support for school choice. We also have Abbott leading on the issue, Governor uh, Greg Abbott. 
He came out in January of 2022 saying that this was going to be, this session was going to be the biggest, swiftest, most powerful push for school choice in Texas history. I sat down with him in Austin just a couple of months ago, and he appears to be a true school choice supporter. And then in May of 2022, he did a school choice event uh, in San Antonio, Texas, where I grew up. And he explicitly stated that he wants all families, every single student, to have the funding follow them to the school of their choice, to have the funding follow them to the school of their choice, whether that's a public school, a charter school, or a private school. So some politicians will say, I support school choice, but then they'll only support charter schools. Right. So that he listed public, charter, and private shows me that he's serious about private school choice in the state of Texas. And so these dynamics have really shifted over the past few years in particular. I think we have a very decent shot, the best shot we've ever had in Texas coming this session in 2023. In Iowa, you had something similar play out earlier this year where the Senate easily passed an ESA bill that was championed by Governor Reynolds, who is a staunch supporter for parental rights and education. It passed with only one Republican not in favor of the bill through their Senate. But the Iowa House, even after Governor Reynolds did all she could, she held the legislature past the 100-day mark, which is never done, basically never done historically in the state of Iowa. And she tried to wrangle the votes to get a majority in the House. They have 60 of the 100 seats have so, um, so-called Republicans um, have R's next to their name. And uh, they could not get it done. So what did Governor Reynolds do? She went out in the primaries and endorsed nine candidates and endorsed a lot of challengers to sitting incumbents. I believe at least five sitting incumbents because of the issue of school choice. She won eight out of those nine races. And now we believe we have the votes in the in the Iowa House to get an ESA next year in Iowa for the first time. So all eyes on Iowa, all eyes on every red state in particular, Uh, But I'm really excited about Iowa and Texas. Texas uh, uh, will be huge. I mean, it's just a big state. They got over 5 million students in the school system. Arizona was a big victory. It's all in. It's the gold standard. But again, they only have 1 million students in the state of Arizona in the public school system, a little bit more than that. Texas, much bigger. Yeah, like at the the other, you know, the the, the financing is one thing, but the um, thing that I've noticed Republicans do over the years is give their vote to the person they're most afraid of, and and that that's why you have to actively demonstrate a constituency that that is going to show up in in the elections. But um, um, the second thing they do, and I'll, I'll pick on Republicans because I've I've. <laughs> spent some of my career trying to get Republicans to do the right thing and quite often frustrated. Um, they want to sit quiet, yep. like, like you're suggesting. And they, they're, they're going to be the beneficiaries of this, this parental wave, but they're not going to do anything to demonstrate that they actually are deserving of that credit. And that, that's the thing I'm, I'm concerned about. Um, they, they have to be willing to stand up for good ideas, and they have to be able to explain those ideas, and they have to go out and defend those ideas. And one way that they're doing that in other states, like Oklahoma, for example, they passed parental rights types of legislation, I'll get to that in a second, and then killed a school choice bill. Uh, They they have some type of tax credit funded scholarships in Oklahoma, so good on them for doing that historically. But this year they tried to go all in. Uh, Senate President Pro Tem, who's a Republican, Greg Treat, he fought as hard as possible in the Senate to try to get it done. They were so close to having the votes. It shouldn't have been close. They should have been able to easily get it done. They have, what, 70 to 80 percent uh, Republican uh, majorities in the state of Oklahoma in each of their chambers, whereas Arizona just got it done, went all in. They had the slimmest of majorities. They have one-seat majorities in the state of Arizona, in their House and in their Senate, and they had the governor's office. That took every single Republican in the state of Arizona to show up and vote for their party platform issue of school choice, but more importantly, to vote in favor of parental rights and empowering parents to do so. Why wasn't Oklahoma able to get it done? But one 
that's just an open question. I think it's partially because the teachers unions have been playing in their primaries for a long time and people haven't been paying attention. It's time to wake up. You can't just wake up by showing up at the school board meeting. You got to look at the elections too, because you're right. Politicians don't really respond to logic all that often. They respond to power and pressure and parents are that change agent that are making politicians put their finger in the wind and, and start to change their views on school choice as well and flip their votes as well. That's the only way to change this. And as libertarians, we like to think if we just make the right arguments and we can convince people to do the right thing, that they'll change. No, politicians sometimes listen to power, to logic, but politicians are more likely to listen to power than logic. It's a sad state of affairs, but that's the reality of what we live in. But in these deep red states, you've seen legislation pass pretty recently in response to the curriculum disagreements, CRT bans, transparency bills. And then the Republicans get to check a box and say, I did it. Look, we fixed the school system. I banned CRT. That's what you guys were upset about. And now everything is going to be fine and dandy, right? Wrong. If you look at some states, for example, you have a group uh, that's great at undercover journalism. It's called Accuracy in Media. And they've gone into states that have CRT bans, including Tennessee, Idaho and Iowa, which failed to get an ESA this year. And they've gone undercover. I think they were acting like they were parents or something. And then on the videos, they have the administrators and other school employees admitting that even though there's a CRT ban, they're still going to do it anyway. They're going to either call it social emotional learning, or maybe they'll just say that this is a form of improving student mental health. So they can keep changing Uh, the definition of what they're doing. And even if it's not explicitly listed in the curriculum, they can still teach through a CRT lens Mm -hmm. and they're going to continue what they want to do anyway. And so if they don't listen to these bans, which I would argue are basically unenforceable as evidenced by these videos, I hear that there are more coming out from other states in red states that have CRT bans. Uh, At the end of the day, you need a bottom-up solution. You need to be able to have families sort to institutions that best align with their values and meet their needs in other ways. That will provide competition to the pub- for the public schools to focus more on the basics too because whether you're leaning too far left or too far right in your curriculum, that's not in your best uh, incentives as a public school. If you have uh, customers who can leave, your best in- your your if you want to maximize the amount of students you have and funding going to your school, you would focus on what parents want, which is education, not indoctrination, because you won't want to upset the left or the right or independence. And the best way to do that is to focus on the basics. And so I think more legislators are also seeing that, look, at the end of the day, school choice is the only solution. It's the only way to truly secure parental rights in education. And by the way, why should the government be determining what should the curriculum should be. This is a one-size-fits-all problem. It's a form of playing whack-a-mole. I mean, the CRT battles of today were the common core battles of yesterday. That's already changed to the gender ideology battles of today. Uh, So there's always going to be some type of disagreement, and the reason for that is because parents disagree about how they want their kids raised, and schooling is just an extension of parenting, and we shouldn't feel compelled to control how other people's children are raised. The only way out of this mess through freedom as opposed to force is to fund students directly and to allow families to sort into institutions that best align with their values, whether that's a public school, charter school, private school, or a home-based education provider. That's the only way out of this mess. There's no other solution. Everything else is just a tweak to the top-down disaster that we call the public school system that is a one-size-fits-all disaster that will, by definition, not work for the unique and varied needs of individual families. They they do such a good job of getting parents to fight with each other as a way of of getting no one to focus on the fact that the system's actually run by bureaucrats that care about themselves as opposed to actually educating kids. And you, I couldn't have said it better um, in terms of allowing parents to sort this out um, for themselves, we we spent so much time having these sort of culture wars, and and schools are probably ground zero for that. But why not just let parents decide? That's that's the bottom line. That that is the bottom line. But when you're a politician faced with the decision to 
uh, vote for a school choice bill and say I'm for parental rights, which is the, the best way to do it. It's uh, not being a faker. Or you could vote for this other thing that sounds good and I can campaign off of this, but actually doesn't threaten the teachers yeah, unions who yeah. are another it's special pre- interest it's group. It's pretend. It's, a, it's an election year thing. They're making a political calculation and when they vote for something that sounds good, but that doesn't actually threaten their opponents, they don't get pushback from other, either side. That's where it's important for our new special interest group, the parents, to step in and say and call the call for what it is, a bunch of BS, yeah. and say, look, this isn't actually empowering me. You have a CRT ban in Texas, and you guys are still doing it in the classroom. My, my kid's coming home telling me that they aren't happy uh, and that uh, the teachers are, are teaching them this biased curriculum. They got it on their cell phone videos. They've... They've taken it back home. Or maybe their kid's just not doing well academically. There's so many reasons that parents might not be happy with what they're getting in the public school system. And so when the parents start to figure this out, and they're starting to do so already, they're going to start holding the politicians accountable for taking this easy vote and instead saying, no, you can't say you're for parental rights and then vote against the policy that actually secures parental rights in education, which is giving me a real choice, school choice. Uh, 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 allowing me to take the funding to a provider that best meets my needs. If you vote against that, you can't tell me you're for parental rights in education. Right. And so it just requires more of this information getting out there, listing these votes on social media and in the news. And look, in Texas, the Republicans in the House are going to have to make a decision. I think they'll make the right decision because parents already have woken up and they are reading the tea leaves and they understand that this is part of their party platform in texas this is the a top eight gop legislative priority this session as well this is something that they need to do and if they don't families are going to hold them accountable because they're watching finally unlike in 2017 people thought things were fine in the public school system and they thought that republicans were actually following the party platform issues like school choice but now they're watching so closely that I think they'll do the right thing. They'll make another political calculation and say, you know what? Yeah. We got to listen to parents now because coming out against parental rights and education is emerging as a form of political suicide, particularly for Republicans, because they're supposed to be the parents' party. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. So there's, I, I want to run this theory past you and, and we'll wrap up with this. Um, talk, just talk about the, the, the raw politics going into November. Um, it's, it's an off-year election. There's no president on the ballot um, which means that it's going to be lower turnout, or at least traditionally lower turnout, which means that motivation matters. And absolutely, there's a lot of angry parents that are going to show up. But I think there's another constituency. And, and you and I, I think, are both friends with a lot of these moms on Twitter, um, former Democrats, former Biden voters. Um, uh, Jennifer Say comes to mind as, as sort of a, a classic example of someone that, that, that spoke up against the damage being done to children in schools and was punished professionally for it. So she's pretty damn motivated. And I think that there is a block of parents who probably are going to cross the political aisle and vote for something different this time. Do you, I mean, I sense that's true, and I, I'm fairly certain it's true. Do you have any data to back that up? I believe the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools put out a poll. I don't know if they commissioned it or they just cited it, saying that about 86% 80, of voters in that poll said that they would switch their party affiliation because of the <coughs> politicians' views on education. So that could go both ways, mm-hmm. right? But sure. uh, that just goes to show you this is an important issue. And the latest polling actually nationally from Washington Post and ABC News um, among registered voters found that Republicans were only down one point on the issue of education. You might say, well, why aren't they up? The Democrats uh, pushed for school closures and they're the ones overly politicizing the schools with the curriculum stuff. Look, Don't look at the snapshot, look at the trend. 
If you look at Gallup from 2017, for example, they had a nationwide poll on this. Democrats were up about 17 percentage points on education. And that's not just uh, a one-time thing. This is decades of polling showing that Democrats are typically double-digit uh, up double digits on the issue of ed education so that Republicans are even in striking distance nationwide on education. That's very telling. And then two left-leaning polls just came out earlier this summer, one by Randy Weingarten's union, the AFT, in battleground areas. The other one was by Democrats for Education Reform, both left-leaning groups, obviously. Both of them found Republicans up in battleground areas among likely voters on the issue of education. The AFT poll, the union poll, found Republicans up by one point. The Democrats for Education Re Reform found Republicans up by three points. Again, you might say that's not, a, that's not huge, but that's a seismic shift in support towards Republicans on the issue of education. They need to lean into this just like we did with Glenn Youngkin, uh, like Glenn Youngkin did with his election last year in November of 2021. Uh, and the thing is, these polls are just snapshots in time. Those can change based on what the politicians do. Mm -hmm. Education wasn't a number one issue in the election in, in Virginia um, uh, until Terry McAuliffe did his whole gaffe on stage when he said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. If Glenn Youngkin didn't say a word about that, they didn't do any negative ads on that, and if he didn't lean into that and he stayed silent on the issue, he might not have won the election, first of all, Education probably wouldn't have been the number two issue in the election, and he probably wouldn't have won with education voters unless he made that a thing. So politicians, Republicans in particular, they can change this dynamic. Although the Washington Post poll, which you can maybe even make the argument it's a left-leaning source, and maybe they their their polling was biased in favor of Democrats. I don't know if that's the case or not. I don't know who com who actually ran the polling numbers and what their historical lean was on on those polls. But if Republicans lean into the issue even more and talk about education and get Democrats to unsuccessfully defend their anti-parent position in many cases, well, then Republicans could increase that number and make themselves even more so in. Uh, favored by voters on the issue of education. These are just snapshots. You talk about it more. You can win on the issue, make your party uh, even more so the parents' party. And I think a lot of the times politicians will look at these polls and say, look, we're not winning on this issue, even if we're just down by one point. I don't think I should talk about that. No, that can change based on what you say about the issue. Yeah. And uh, Glenn Youngkin showed us how it's done. A final point for parents. Um and as a former grassroots organizer, it's important to emphasize that that the election matters and who gets elected matters. But the day after the election is kind of the beginning of this process because politicians sometimes make promises that they don't intend to keep. Sometimes they say things because they have to. And that's that's part of the model that you're advocating. We need to put pressure on these folks, but you can't go home the day after the election. You got to make sure that they follow through and do what they promised. That's right. And some people had questions about Glenn Youngkin and school choice, for example. Uh, but we've gotten him on on record on the radio after getting elected saying he does support education savings accounts. And there was in the budget in Virginia this year something that would have cut their tax credit scholarship program, their only private school choice program, in half uh, when it comes to their total funding allocated for that program. It would have been cut in half. And a lot of people were like, this came out of nowhere. Where, how did this get into the budget? I think maybe the Democrats kind of quietly slipped it in. And we had a huge social media campaign. I tweeted about it, tweeted directly at Glenn Youngkin and said, look, here's your opportunity to, uh, um, to fix this. Because in Virginia, the, the governor can do a line item, um, uh, either line item veto or a line item. Um, they, they can send it back to the legislature and, and change what uh, what policies are included. And he ended up doing that. He ended up taking out the cut of the program. So good on Glenn Youngkin for saving the school choice program in Virginia. And then the Virginia House, they took the Republicans took power. They have a 52-48 Republican majority in the Virginia House. They passed an education savings account program this year as well. A strictly party line vote with all Republicans in favor, all Democrats opposed. It went over to the Senate in Virginia. The Democrats have, I believe, a one-seat majority in the Senate, 
and it went over to their education committee where they have, a, I believe, a two-seat or three-seat Democrat majority where it quietly uh, failed. Um, so that could change after their 2023 elections. Uh, that's not going to change in 2022. But also, look, what we saw with Pennsylvania's uh, gubernatorial candidate, Josh Shapiro, a Democrat, switching his side on school choice. That can happen in Virginia, too. Mm-hmm. We, all you need is one one Democrat to do the right thing and support parents as opposed to teachers unions. And you can get ESAs in Virginia as well. Cool. So let's let's uh, let's plan on getting together after the election to see where we end up and what needs to be done next. Um, tell everybody where they can find you and your organization and resources available. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at DeAngelis Corey, just my last name and then my first name. But also, if you want to help us in the fight for education freedom, you can take the Education Freedom Pledge. That's just educationfreedompledge.com. Or for short, you can type in edfreedompledge.com. You can follow any updates from me that I'll have about legislation moving in your state so that you could rally around those bills, tell your legislators to support them, and... uh, achieve school choice in your state. So again, that's educationfreedompledge.com. And oh, by the way, yeah, I was trying to, uh, wanted to bring this up earlier that I believe that the school choice movement has made a well-intentioned mistake historically in pushing for school choice legislation. Again, thinking too much on logical terms rather than opposed to political calculations that are made by Republicans and Democrats in office. And the mistake that I believe that a lot of us have of us have made is that we've made the bipartisan case for school choice, which I think it is a bipartisan policy on the ground. And we've messaged in that way as well. And I think it's uh, correct arguments that school choice is an equalizer. It allows for more families to have access to educational opportunities who couldn't afford it before. It's also a right-leaning policy because of competition and markets and Uh, This could be better for your curriculum disagreements that you might have in the public school system. You can make left-leaning and right-leaning arguments for school choice. I think we focus too much on making the left-leaning arguments to try to win over Democrats who who might even be with us philosophically but are listening to the political power dynamics on the ground coming from one of their biggest uh, donors, the teachers unions, who contribute over 99% of their campaign contributions to them as opposed to Republicans each year. And what I think has changed with a lot of school choice groups, or or at least a couple of them over the past couple of years, is we've kind of seen that Republicans are the ones voting for the policy. And if it's messaged as a bipartisan thing, and it's not a GOP litmus test issue, it's not a Republican Party platform issue, then the Republicans in office get a pass. They can say, It's not a Republican thing. I don't need to vote for it. And so what we end up with is you have Democrats voting against it and Republicans voting against it. So you don't get it in blue states or in red states. But recently we've seen a surge in bills passing in red states, particularly because I think it has become more of a GOP litmus test issue and they've leaned into the issue. And I think the path towards bipartisanship is not through pretending it's a bipartisan policy among elected officials. I mean, we should still make the arguments to Democrats and say, look, this is a bipartisan thing philosophically, but we got to make it politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right things, just like Milton Friedman famously said. Those are wise words. And the way that we do that with school choice, in the short run, you're going to have one party benefiting from leaning into parental rights. We're seeing that happen with the GOP emerging as the parents' party. We saw that with Terry McAuliffe, and we're seeing that with other elections at the same time. But the more that they do it and lean into parental rights, the more it becomes politically disastrous for Democrats to come out against it. And we're even seeing some Democrat statewide elected uh, candidates like Josh Shapiro in Virginia switching his tune on school choice. And that's because he doesn't want a Terry McAuliffe moment happen to him. He doesn't want Doug Mastriano to be able to say, you're a school choice hypocrite because you sent all your kids to private school, Josh Shapiro, and you also exclusively attended private school. Shapiro essentially took that argument away from Doug Mastriano. He can't be accused of school choice hypocrisy anymore, um, or very effectively at least, because he's supporting Lifeline scholarships now in Pennsylvania. And so in the in the short run, I think you get some 
uh, political victories for the party that moves first. We're seeing the GOP do that. And in the long run, you have the uh, bipartisan support because it becomes disastrous to come out against it. And it be, just becomes unthinkable in the long run to be, be, be against school choice, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. And so I, I see some segments of the school choice movements kind of learning from that and uh, and calling out Republicans. I'm doing that on social media. When they come out against their, their, their party platform issue, I call it out. If they vote against school choice, I'll call it out on social media. We're seeing the national media calling it out as well. And uh, so th- this is a good turn of events. And although it's seemingly counterintuitive at first to believe that you can get bipartisanship through hyperpartisanship. Seems like it doesn't make any sense. When you think about the political calculations, it's much more likely that that's going to happen than if you pretend it's bipartisan, bipartisan and then you get no victories because people say, it's not my issue. We had a slogan during the Tea Party days that upset some of my Republican friends. You have to beat the Republicans before you can beat the Democrats. That's right. That's right. Yeah, in the primaries. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.